You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. 12 today, so if you open your Bibles, chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and straighten your weak knees and make straight path for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, and no root of bitterness springs out and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, New City. It is great to be with you all. I was here with you guys, uh, worshiping with you last fall, and I would say it's great to see so many of your all's faces again, but you all have lights, like, beaming me in the face, so <laughs> it's, we don't have those at our church, so I can't see many of you very clearly, but I'm trusting that many of you who I met last time are here. It's, it's great to be back with you guys regardless. Uh, my name's Steve. I pastor at a church called Doxology in Arlington. We're a partnering church in the Acts 29 Church Planning Network, and it's just such a gift to be partners in ministry. Will's been such a, a help to me. He's been in ministry longer than I have, and um, it's always helpful for me when guest preachers can come in and give me and my family a break, and so it's great to be here and to fill in for Will while I think he's on vacation. So, And, uh, you know, it's funny because, so John, who is helping lead worship for us today, we go to the same church, and but we didn't know we were each going to be here this morning, and we were, having a, we were having a staff meeting on Wednesday, and he's like, hey, you just, uh, <laughs> I'm going to be there. So I don't know what mind games y'all are playing. I'm like, oh, I, you didn't tell me you're interviewing for another job. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I just love getting to, yeah, especially be here with, with John, who's, who's a dear friend. So um, let's go ahead and, and look at this passage from Hebrews 12. Uh, as a forewarning, it is a challenging passage. Uh, we're going through Hebrews as a church, and I asked your pastor, I said, you know, would you like me to preach on when I come? And he said, just do the one, you know, that you're all doing this week at Doxology. And so here we are in Hebrews 12. And so if you're offended by this, uh, you can take it up with Will when he gets back from, from vacation, okay? Uh, but I really, I hope it does challenge you in the same way it's been challenging me as I've been studying this. And so um, we can see the gist of it in this first sentence. Um, so let's just look at this to set things up, where the author says, Therefore, in verse 12, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And he's continuing a running the race metaphor he set up earlier. So Hebrews is all about persevering in the race of faith and doing it together as a church. And so when we read this, we think, I think most of us think very individualistically, right? So I'm running in a marathon, I'm by myself, I'm tired, so I have to, you know, I have to pull my shoulders back, I have to, you know, get, you know, speak my, you know, self-talk to myself and get myself back in the game. But 
that's not the sense of this verse. Uh, the sense is much more plural than that, and this comes out in the Greek. And so really how this reads is strengthen your all's drooping hands and strengthen one another's weak knees. And that paints a very different picture, right? So you think about you're running a race with other people. You see someone falling down next to you, and you pick them up. And so what this passage is about, it's our corporate responsibility to one another as a local church. And, you know, the, the longer I look into my own heart and the more I work with people just in the church, the more I realize this is something we really don't like doing. And so just as an example, I've been reading this book called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb. Maybe some of you have read it. It's been on the New York Times bestseller list for a little while. And so the book is about, she's a therapist, and it's a memoir, and she essentially tells her story about how she's a therapist, and she realized that she needed to go to therapy herself. And so she chronicles you know, her going to see a therapist. And what catapulted her into wanting to see a therapist was a really difficult breakup she went through. So she tells this story. She's a single mom uh, in her, I think, I believe she's in her 40s, single mom in her 40s. And she says, so I was dating this guy for a couple years, and I liked him a lot. And we had had conversations about marriage and even how he would help me take care of my child and so forth. And then one evening out of the blue, we're having a conversation and he says, we can't be together anymore. And she goes, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, I've been thinking more about it and I just don't want to be responsible for a child for the next you know, 10 years or so because I think her kid was around in the five to eight Adrian, she goes, you, you've known I've had a child. Like, why have you not brought this up before? And I thought you loved me. And he goes, I'm madly in love with you, but you have a kid. She goes, but I come with a child. And he goes, here's the thing. I love my freedom. And as I even envision, you know, future Saturday mornings, I just want to be able to sit in the chair and read a book and not have a little kid say, look at these Legos I built. I just want to read my book. I don't want to have to look at the Legos. And he breaks up with her. And as I was reading this, I was thinking, what is this guy's address? Like, he is, he, not, not really, I don't really mean that, um, disqualify me as a pastor if I did. I was like, this guy's a total jerk. And then I went, oh man, how often have I been like that with God's church? You know, like, Jesus, I'm madly in love with you, but I really just don't like your people sometimes. And don't, but Jesus says, but I come with a church. That's what he says throughout the entire New Testament. And you know, so how many times do we think, yeah, I, I want to go to church today, but I really don't want to have to deal with all the annoying small talk that takes place before and after the service. Or I'm going to go to church, but I'm going to keep myself at a distance. I'm not really going to let people into my life. So they really, you know, we're hearing it more and more, you know, I love Jesus, I'm just not crazy about the church kind of culture. And so what we're looking at today is this very real and beautiful, but very real and challenging corporate responsibility we have toward one another. And so uh, let's just look at it. There are a number of things in this passage, but we'll boil it down to these three things we'll look at. So uh, first we'll look at like what exactly, according to Hebrews 12, are we called to help each other do? Number two, why are we called to do it? And then number three, what are some practical steps? You know, what does this actually look like? So first, what are we called to do as a corporate body, as a local church? Uh, so this will be you all, New City, Manassas. Number two, why are we called to do it? Why is it so important? And then number three, uh, what are some practical steps? How does this, what does this actually look like in practice? And so uh, let's go ahead and continue in verse uh, 13. 
So we'll notice he starts in verse 12, therefore, that's important. So therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. And then verse 13, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So with that word, therefore, in verse 12, he's continuing his train of thought from earlier in the chapter. Bible reading 101 is always look at the context. And earlier in chapter 12, and this matters because this is going to help us picture what's going on here. Essentially what Hebrews 12 is about is that God will allow difficult situations or people into your life to draw out, to, to, it says, you know, the Lord disciplines those he loves. So God will bring in difficult circumstances to draw out impurities in your character, you know, selfishness, greed, you know, callousness, and so forth, scrape them off, and then replace them with his own character so that you reflect his glory and look more like Jesus, which is what we're made for. So that's the context, how God makes us look like Jesus. And then verse 13, he says, make straight paths for your feet so that what's lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So on a physical level, when you're running and say your knees are hurting and you're really tired, it's not going to make sense to choose a hilly and a rocky path, right? Because it's just going to make things harder for you, right? You need to find a straight and smooth path. And so spiritually, what he's saying is, see, what is lame may not be put out of joint is all of us are lame, spiritually speaking, right? All of us have parts of his corporate and plural, right, for one another. What it's calling us to do is as we see parts of the character and the people around us that don't look like Jesus, we're called to help them get on the straight and narrow path, right, so that they are walking as one who belongs to Jesus. And so you can sum up this section of Hebrews 12 this way is, one of God's main missions in our lives is to make us reflect his glory more and verse 12 and 13, the ordinary means by which he helps us do that is through the context of a local church. And so the main exhortation of this passage is, is what we're called to do for one another is to take responsibility for one another's moral and spiritual maturity. Like That's the main exhortation here. Just take responsibility for one another's moral and spiritual maturity. And so before we move on to why is this so important to do, I think it's worth just pausing for a couple of reflections. First, to state the obvious, we don't like doing this. Because when's the last time you saw someone, you know, thinking or acting out of step with the gospel? And you said something like, you know, I've noticed you tend to speak harshly to your children. Or don't you think your preoccupation with money or career says something about your heart? Or, you know, from one man to another, you need to man up and take responsibility for yourself and for those around you. When's the last time you said something like that and the person you're talking to said, ah, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> No. <laughs> like, and if that does happen, teach me your secrets. Right? Because all of us, to a degree, we don't believe we're saved by sheer grace. Right? But actually, we merit our way into God's family. And so when someone says something like that to us, we're so quick to bring out our inner lawyer and justify it. Well, you don't have children. or you, Well, look at all your flaws. And so because we're so touchy, like, we don't like doing this with one another. And so just to acknowledge, like, this is hard to do. But number two, as we think about helping one another look more like Jesus, 
this is actually what we most want. Uh, you know, the other week I read something where uh, the author said, you know, the, and he was talking about ongoing transfer. The best thing you as a pastor can do for the congregation you lead is your ongoing transformation into Christ-likeness. The best thing you can do as a pastor for the people you lead is your ongoing transformation into Christ. I was just, that is so true on so many levels. I mean, the thing that my church family needs from me isn't to be a dynamic preacher, right, or a flawless strategic leader. What they, those things are helpful, and handling God's word, of course, matters, but what do they really need from me? They need me to grow in humility and gentleness and being unafraid to speak truth and to be less self-centered and more other-centered like my Savior, to look out for those who are hurting in our church. But I can't do that if I'm running alone. I need my church family to help me do it. And this isn't just true for pastors. It's true for you. I mean, the best thing you can do for your friends, for your families, for your, and don't over-spiritualize this either, you know, for your boss or your colleagues at work is your ongoing transformation into Christ-likeness. It really is. And so what we're being invited into is to help one another actually grow and to do that. Okay, so that's what we're called to do is to help one another grow morally and spiritually so we, f- we reflect Christ's glory. Okay, number two, why does this matter? And it's already been you know, very implicit, hopefully. But in addition to the transformation we all want and what's best for us socially, let's look at something even more sharp. That no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Meaning, see to it, take responsibility that the people around you in your church actually persevere in faith to the end and make it to the heavenly city. And so to put this in you know, clearest terms, what it's saying is if, if you're all pastors, Pastor Joe and Pastor Will and your leaders like Sam and, and your community group leaders and so forth, don't keep maturing and make it. You're somewhat responsible and if you don't keep persevering in faith and make it, Will and Joe and Sam and so forth are somewhat responsible. And if the people next to you in these seats don't keep maturing and make it all the way to the end, then you are somewhat responsible. This is a weighty teaching. This is not Gospel 101. But this is the reality, and it's, it's very foreign to us, and especially in a very individualistic culture. And an illustration that helped me really, really drive this home is the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, and it's the story of the first murder. And they're two brothers, which also makes things very real, especially if you have children. And Cain kills his brother Abel. He murders him. And then God chases after Cain, and he says, Cain, where is your brother? And do you know Cain's response? He said, what? I don't know where he is. Am I my brother's keeper? I.e., am I responsible for my brother? And what's God's response? Yes, you are clearly. Where Jesus comes and he says, I'm my sister's keeper. I'm my brother's keeper, where he bears full responsibility 
for our sin and brokenness, going to the cross. And then he calls us to reflect him. When we see those around us in our church family to say, yes, I am my sister's keeper. I'm doing something out of step with the gospel. Or maybe just something as simple as, you notice them miss a number of community groups or church services in a row? Or, you know, speaking harshly about someone or the other political side or whatever it may be. And you think, you know, it would just... You think to yourself, it would just be so much easier not to say anything because it's going to make things so awkward. Really, that's just another way of saying, I'm not my brother's keeper. I'm not my sister's keeper. But Jesus invites us into something far better, something far better, where you actually get the opportunity to speak, and people have done this for me all the time, to speak into someone's life, guys, and You have no idea by helping them, even with a very small thing, even if they don't respond in the moment, is going to help them make it. And when you make it to the new earth and they get to see you and say, thank you for saying what you did because now I'm here today, it will be worth it. Okay, so what are we called to do? Take responsibility for one another's moral and spiritual growth. Why are we called to do it? Because the stakes are high and the stakes are truly eternal. We need to see to it that our brothers and sisters don't fail to see the grace of God. So finally, number three, uh, what are some practical steps in terms of, you know, how does this, and we've already gone over a couple examples, but let's look more deeply at the text and see what are some ways this plays out uh, with one another. And we'll look at two, two main things he highlights. And the first thing is in verse 14 where he says, strive for peace with everyone. And so here he's echoing Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. And how Jesus frames that is crucial, because notice Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the peace thinkers, or blessed are the peace lovers, because it's easy to love peace in theory, or to think about peace, but to make peace is really hard. And that's why it says strive for peace. He wouldn't say strive for peace if it was just the default setting, right? So what does striving for peace looks like? It looks like when conflict happens or somebody says something to you or in your presence that irritates you or offends you, the church is avoid. Okay, I'm just going to pretend that didn't happen, but I'm going to stew underneath. Uh, I think about, you know, my family grow up, growing up. I, I was fortunate to, I really was raised in a very loving family, but Sundays were always the worst day of the week. I don't know if you guys find this. This was just my uh, pagan family. But so I had a number of siblings and, you know, parents who trained us in the ways of the Lord. But Sunday morning, it it was as if Satan was in our house. It was just like we could not get along. And, you know, the parents were yelling at the kids, why are you playing video games in your pajamas? It's five minutes before we have to leave for church. And so, you know, everyone's grumpy, exploding one another. And then we jump in the minivan and we don't say a word to each other. The whole trip, and then we get, to, we get to church, and, you know, we get out of our van, you know, still fuming, and someone's, oh, how's it going? We're like, good, good, you know, we're, we're great. And then we, we just don't talk about it, and then rinse, lather, repeat on Sunday. But what we're called to do is to actually enter into conflict and to talk about it for the purpose of reconciliation. And just something I read yesterday morning, I've been reading through Acts on my own, and just something that struck me that I, I wanted to share with you, because it hit me anew, is... It's in Acts 9 where it's the story of the Apostle Paul's conversion when he went from Saul to Paul. And Saul is on the way to Damascus to murder Christians and physically drag women out of their homes. 
Jesus appears to him on the road. He shows him mercy, and then he blinds him, and he tells him to go to a house in Damascus. So Saul is blind alone in a home, and then Jesus appears to this man called Ananias, who's a Christian, and he says, Ananias, I want you to go to the street called Straight, and there's a man called Saul there who's blinded, and I want you to lay your hands on him and heal him. And how does Ananias respond? He says, are you kidding me? First, just side note, like, don't pretend like if you clearly knew the will of the Lord, you would say yes. Just side lesson, because <laughs> almost every time God appears and says, do something, it's no, okay? But then he says, getting a little bit, but Ananias probably had friends or family members who had been murdered or dragged off to prison by this guy. And then, but he goes to Saul, and do you know what the first word he says to him is as he lays his hands on him? Yes. Brother Saul. Can you imagine the impact that that had on Saul? His, the first thing he hears from a Christian is brother. And you know, Paul, one of his main themes in his, in his letters, you know, second to union with Christ, is the imperative of reconciliation. I just, I wonder how Paul's life would have looked so different if Ananias had it done, probably what I would have done. Saul was very vulnerable. I, I don't know. Um, I think at best, I would have been very stony towards Saul. But that's such a great example of peacemaking. He, like, he even had the right, you could say, humanly speaking, to be angry at this guy. And I'm sure he was. But he sought peace. And that, that has changed the world. And so for you, just as you think about practical ways to make peace with people in your church family, I think just two, two small but very difficult things. One is... We're in a cultural moment where it's almost like we're looking for opportunities to be offended. And so just when somebody says something, whether it's out of ignorance or on purpose, and it offends you, just check yourself to say, okay, given what I've been forgiven in Jesus, am I being a little too touchy here? And I mean, it could be something, you know, like maybe you're someone who struggles with infertility, and you hear someone who just can't stop gloating over how easy it is for them to have children. My wife and I were in for over eight years. Or, you know, you're, you desire a spouse or you desire a job. You know, and it's just, mm. Can you extend to them the benefit of the doubt and make peace with them? Or taking it a step further, if someone does say something near you or, you know, to you, and it is offensive. Rather than doing what our default response is to do, which is just to walk away, and then you keep replaying the tapes and you get more and more angry, just go to them. If Ananias could do this uh, to my wife not too long ago, and it was just an amazing example of her practicing what we should be doing in the church, and just saying something to the effect of, hey, you said this the other day, this, maybe this sounds petty, you may have not meant anything by it, but I just wanted to let you know how that affected me, and because we're brothers or sisters in Jesus. I just wanted to come and talk about it and make peace with you. Okay, and the reason this matters, making peace, is because we can't do the other part. We've been looking at this passage as helping one another grow spiritually if we don't have a solid foundation of actual peace Amen. in our church. And so that's the first thing, make peace. And then number two, from that foundation 
of peace that we have, right, in the presence of actual justice and unity we have in a church, we're called to help one another keep eyes ahead. Okay, final thing, help one another keep eyes ahead. And we see this with the example of Esau. So verse 16 See to it uh, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So the story of Jacob and Esau, uh, you can read it in Genesis 25. And you know, I don't want to assume, especially for those of you who are newer to the faith, that you, one of the ways you can read the story is the chaos that entail that ensues in a family when parents show preferential treatment to different children and so Esau is the elder Jacob's the younger and uh, Esau is the more you know he's the more he's the more physical dude he loves to get out there and hunt and kill animals and so forth Jacob's the more you know artsy type he probably plays an instrument and you know he loves cooking like a hipster and so he's He's, uh, I'm not, I mean, I wish I could cook meals and write music. What you guys do up there is like magic to me. But okay, so you get the idea. So Esau, he returns from hunting. I guess he wasn't doing a good job because he's hungry. And Esau, and Jacob is making stew. And so Esau comes in. He's ex- he says, I'm exhausted. Jacob, give me some of that stew. And Jacob says, okay, sell me your birthright. Now, we don't talk like that, so that seems abstract to us, but so a birthright, it was something transferable uh, in this culture. You could transfer it between siblings, you could sell it, and a birthright was something of enormous material and spiritual value. So enormous material value. So whoever had it, the eldest brother typically, they would receive double the share of the rest of their siblings in terms of all the wealth of the family but also spiritual wealth. Whoever had the birthright would be the head of household or the spiritual leader of the people. And so when Esau comes in and says, I'm hungry, can I have some stew? And Jacob says, okay, sell me your birthright. If you're reading this like in its context, you would know immediately Jacob is absolutely out of his mind. Because it's the equivalent of today of you coming in, you know, hungry to your friend's place or your family's place. You say, I'm hungry. Can I please have a bowl of that stew? And they go, okay, give me $20 million is the equivalent. And what Esau does, Esau's response is even more mad than Jacob's request. Because what Esau should have said is, are you joking me? What What did he say? He said, okay. And he sold him his birthright. And what's the essence of what Esau did there? He gave up what mattered most to get what he wanted now. He gave up what mattered most to get what he wanted now. And, you know, I can hate on Esau, but I feel that. And that's why he says here in verse 16, see to it that no one's sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Okay, so how often do we, are we enticed by things in the immediate rather than eternal life? And why does he say, see to it that no one's sexually immoral? That's curious because in that story, we don't see any evidence that Esau is going out of God's, outside of God's design for sex. And I think why the author includes it is because you could say Esau, I mean, in that story, we see he's a man of appetites. Right? He's hungry, so he's going to eat. He's very driven by his emotions. And that is what sexual immorality is. Right? Whether you're in a marriage or outside of a marriage, anytime you step outside of God's design for sex, which is in marriage between a man and a woman, 
You're basically saying, I have this appetite and I need to satisfy it now, regardless of what God has told me and regardless of how it impacts eternal life and my perseverance in the faith and those around me. And so I, I think for us, as we think about different ways that we are prone to focus on the immediate rather than life eternal, uh, a couple ways, you know, one, um, one is, I think, just generally speaking, our lifestyle in the sense of, I mean, how, if someone were to look at our life from the outside and how we pursue upgrade, you know, be it upgrade in our home or upgrading our kitchen or our car or whatever it may be, is our attitude different from that of the world? How we think about retirement, is that different from how the world does it? Uh, second, with our bodies, we're often very focused on the immediate with our bodies. I mean, what's very common to hear in you know, multiple different realms is it's my body, so I should be able to do what I want. And then number three, you know, with, with our money, right? It's my money. I entered it. I can do what I want. And this is why the author says, verse 15, see to it, you know, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Okay, how do we do this? That no, how so? So what does it mean, be careful that a root of bitterness springs up and defiles everything around it? So for the longest time, I thought root of bitterness meant a feeling. I need to stop myself from becoming bitter and angry toward other people. That's actually not what it means. Uh, it's getting its reference from Deuteronomy 29. And the essence of it is a root of bitterness describes a person. So if you think about, think about mold, if mold is you know, growing in some bread you have at home or in food, you're going to throw it out. Why? Because if you don't, it's, it's going to spread. And that's the idea here. If you have a root of bitterness in a local church, i.e. a person who's very immediately minded, rather than focusing on life eternal, like that mind, and we can be, politics matter, right? But we can be too immediately minded with politics. We can be, be too immediately minded with COVID policy, you know, name it, you know, including our own private life. But it says, see to it that that doesn't happen. Why? Because, you know, by it, many become defiled. And so, from a foundation of peace, why we need to watch out for other people being immediately minded and invite others to do it with ourselves is because when we don't, like that mindset spreads throughout the church. And I just, this, it's fascinating to me because as I was thinking about you, know, especially when COVID first started, and I don't know what your all's context was, we're about an hour east of here uh, in Arlington where people were, um, people are a lot more uh, conservative when it comes to COVID, but at least how it was in, in our church setting was, uh, and this isn't me saying this was bad per se, it's just how it was, is, you know, when COVID came, what was the, the saying, right, stop the spread, flatten the curve, and right, because we don't want people to get sick and die, and we had no problem telling one another, you should wear a mask, we had no problems saying if someone wanted to get together with us, saying, oh, well, I'm actually seeing my parents in a couple days, you know, can we just wait until after that to hang out, right, because why, because I might get COVID, I might pass it to my parents, it might get them sick, or even worse, right, we had, many people at least, had no problem stopping the spread of COVID, but how many times do we have a deep problem was stopping the spread of being immediately minded like Esau. And what Esau needed, he needed his brother to say, Esau, what are you doing? Don't give up what matters most for what you want now. And so what we need to do for each other in the church is to love each other enough 
to say, here's the trajectory you're on, or even just, here's a pattern I've seen. And in love, I just need to tell you. And this is so hard. And so how do we get the power to do it? And it's because the story of Jacob and Esau, thank goodness, isn't the story of the Bible. And it's not the story of the world, therefore. Because in Jesus, we do see a brother. Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to be called our brother. And Jesus is the anti-Jacob. Right? Because what did Jacob do? He saw his brother in a vulnerable spot, and he said, I'm going to take from you what's most valuable to you. But Jesus sees you in a vulnerable spot, and your inability to make yourself whole, or to feel like you belong, or to be reconciled to God. And he says, I'm going to give up what matters most to me. My love relationship with God the Father that I've had from all eternity to give you my birthright. And I'm going to make the transfer, not by giving a bowl of stew, but by giving my birth and my dignity so that you can be my little sister and my little brother. Or as John chapter 1 verse 12 says, to all who received Jesus, he gave them the right to be children of the Most High. And to the degree that you see what Jesus gave up for you, to that degree, you can then go and speak into someone else's life enough to position of humility when somebody speaks into your life. Because your identity is no longer right, a projection of an image of a really good person that you're trying to uphold. But it's being loved by the Most High. And so I hope for you all as a church, you can begin to do this together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I uh, thank you so much for loving us enough to challenge us and doing in Jesus first (laughs) what we needed so badly uh, to give up everything uh, so that we can be co-heirs with Jesus and have all the riches in him. And I pray that that will catch fire in our hearts anew this morning and that I pray that you be with New City. I know they've been through a lot of changes over the past year. Um, with places and people and leaders and everything going on in our nation. And uh, Lord, will you empower them by your Holy Spirit and the love of Jesus to truly make peace with one another and to help one another resemble Jesus, Um, not just so they make it to the end, but also so they have more joy today. It's in his name we pray. Amen.